Welcome to Awakening. If you're new, my name's Ryan. We're thrilled that you'd join us this morning. And like Michelle said, we are starting a brand new series, When Heaven is Silent. But before we dive into that, I want to make note of one Thing, and it's in your bulletin. If you would do me a favor, just pull this card out. It's the generous card. And what we do every single year is something called the Generous Campaign. We've done it since the birth of our church, and so this is the fifth year for us doing this of where we, during this season, take a moment and take time to realize that we have far more than we need and that we can be agents of generosity and good to those who are in need. And so we do the generous campaign because we believe the church should unleash extravagant generosity to a hurting and broken world. Why? Because we have such an extravagantly generous God. And we celebrate the extravagant generosity of God at Christmas time of Emmanuel, God with us. And so you've heard, many of you have heard of this every single week, but here's where the rubber meets the road. On December 18, we're going to take, we're calling it Generous Sunday, and so the offering that Sunday is going to be strictly solely for the Generous Campaign. And some of you are saying, well, I'm not going to be here on December 18th. That's fine. You can give now. You can give anytime you want. Uh, You can give online. You can give uh, by check. Does anybody still do checks? Just curious. I do. I know. Okay, a few of you. Thank you. Uh, You can give via text if you like, um, or you can give in cash. But here's my goal. I long for 100% of us as a community to give. And so if you do give by cash, would you take one of those little kind of giving envelopes and fill it in just so we know that you gave, just so that you can be a part of the stories of what God's doing. And for, I skipped past one part. Here's where we're giving. We're giving to Haiti, uh, not just Haiti, the country, but to some specific needs in Haiti. One is in the area of ongoing relief for those devastated by the hurricane. Uh, Two, in the area of bringing clean drinking water to communities who do not have it. And then in the third area is in the area of education from uh, middle school, elementary, high school, and even college. And uh, many studies have been found to help uh, bring about uh, or eradicate extreme poverty, we have to begin to address the long-term needs in the area of education. So that's where 100% of that money's going to. All right. You with me yet? All right. See, that's better. That's better. We're warming up together. Good. All right. If you got your notes, why don't you open them up? We're going to dive in this morning. And and we're simply talking about when heaven is silent. And I loved what Michelle just said there because Christmas has totally caught me off guard. In fact, if I'm really honest, Thanksgiving caught me off guard. I had no idea it was Thanksgiving until the week of. I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, And then I, I knew something was wrong when I was waking up full. You know, I was like, I am eating far too much because I am actually waking up completely full. Now, here's what happened to me, though, and maybe it's happened to you. Because Thanksgiving caught me off guard, there's a bit of it that I wasn't prepared for it. And there's parts of the moments around Thanksgiving that I know because of past Thanksgiving that I felt like I missed out on. 
We're in a season in the life of the church known as Advent. Advent simply means arrival. And in church history, they spend the four weeks prior to Christmas in the weeks of Advent preparing our hearts and our minds for the arrival of the coming Savior. Why? So that we don't miss out on the significance of the moment. So that we don't just somehow rush through the season, and this is our tendency, we rush through the season, somehow get enough presents, and not, but this is, I wasn't planning this, who's going to shop on Christmas Eve? Just anybody, any courageous souls? Okay. Because, why? Because the, we're so busy, and we got so many things going on, that finally wake up Christmas Eve, and you go like, oh, I forgot mom's gift, oh, I forgot my wife's gift, oh, kids, what? Oh, sorry, uh, we gave your gifts to some other people. Why? We just didn't get them. Okay, but here's the deal. We're going to take the next few weeks and just simply begin to recalibrate our heart to what God is up to and the arrival of our Savior. Um, this series actually it comes from a conversation I had um, a while ago, maybe a few months ago, with a close friend. And we were talking about seasons in our life when God is silent. I don't know if you've experienced some of those seasons. When you just feel like you're praying and heaven feels silent. When you feel like your prayers just kind of bounce off the ceiling. And I remember he said this, and it was just so powerful. He only had to say it once, and it just stuck with me. He said, you know, Ryan, there's times, there's been times in my walk with Jesus that when I think about God, I doubt. When it comes to my future, there's fear. And when I reflect on my past, there's shame. God, doubt, future, fear, past, shame. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about future. We're going to talk about our past. We're going to talk about the reality of doubt, of fear, and of shame. And here's what's so amazing, is I believe with all my heart that when it comes to God, when it comes to our future, when it comes to our past, when it comes to the wrestling moments of when heaven was silent, the Christmas story speaks so loudly to the deepest longings and needs of our soul. Uh, I grew up, many of you know this, but I grew up as a Christian. Um, I grew up as a pastor's kid. In fact, some of my earliest memories as a kid was going to church. Some of my earliest memories would be Sunday school. Remember when we had Sunday school? Remember that? Okay, no, nobody remembers that. All by myself. Okay. <laughs> But I, I, I remember the first time I was on stage was for a Christmas, kids' Christmas musical. They used to do these things. They used to torture kids, throw them up front, all for the sheer glee of grandparents and parents to watch their kids dressed in freaky clothes. I was the, one of the wise men or kings, and I remember singing, We three kings of Orient are, with two other guys, and that is my earliest childhood Memory, first time I was ever on stage. I grew up hearing the Christmas story for years and years and years. 
And then I hit high school, and some of you hit high school this way too. And I just decided I'm going to do my own thing. I just decided, you know what, I don't know about the God thing, but I'm going to do my own thing and went my own way and lived for friends and fun and all the rest. And then the summer before my senior year, I had this life-changing encounter with Jesus that wrecked me. And some of you have had that kind of encounter that just absolutely wrecks you. Uh, I was so wrecked by Jesus, so changed by him that I came into my senior year and I couldn't shut up about him. I was that annoying Christian friend on campus that would sit down next to somebody and go, hey, have you you heard about Jesus? I'm like, who? Yeah, no, no, Jesus. Um, Are you um, crazy? I might be, but I encountered him, and I'm different. I'm changed. I think you could use Jesus. And they're like, okay, well, let's talk about this. Literally, I had like 12 friends come to know Christ my senior year of high school because I was that crazy Christian on campus. Amen. Um, (laughs) Let me finish the story and then you go, oh boy. Um, (laughs) Now, now as I graduated from high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I took a year off of school, uh, worked and realized that um, tending windows would not be my future. Uh, But... And I realized the only thing that I was really passionate about was God's Word. And so I went to school to study, to go into ministry. I went to Moody in Chicago and was studying three years. And then something happened. Maybe you can identify with this. This faith that seemed so unshakable became shaken. This faith that was the foundation of my life from the earliest memories that I have now came into question. I began to wrestle with questions I thought I had settled. Like, is there really a God? And if there is, what kind of God is he? How do I know that he's actually good or that he even is a he? Is Jesus really the only way? And so you you just got to know for me, like, when doubt began to creep into my world, it was one of the most frightening experiences I can remember because I felt like if I was to utter a question, it would betray my parents, my family, my friends. In fact, my wife and I got married uh, December 21st, 2002. And this man of faith that she thought she was marrying was this doubtful, wrestling, scared, spitless. And I thought if I'd utter it, I would betray the bride that just said yes to me. And so, I was alone, feeling like if I spoke out, no one would understand. At Christmas time, surrounded by friends and family, and yet I felt so isolated and alone. Later on, I'd come to find out that I had a God that was big enough for every question. 
Later on, I would come to discover that, that I had a God that wasn't shocked by doubt. I'd come to discover that he wasn't afraid or somehow turned like, oh. Later on, I'd discover that doubt isn't actually the enemy of faith, but a sacred companion. Later on, I'd discover I discovered that God is with me even in those seasons. But it was the dark night of the soul for me. And the truth of it is, is we all face seasons of doubt. We all face moments where we think we're the only ones, that no one else has thought this, that we're all alone. We all have had moments when heaven has felt incredibly Silent. And as a result, we feel alone. Perhaps even surrounded by friends and family, but all by yourself. I don't know if you know this, but the Christmas story at its very beginning, and we don't actually start at the beginning. We're going to start at the beginning today. It's going to be a weird place for some because you've never started at the beginning. You always start like two chapters in. It starts back at the beginning. But the, at the beginning, it actually addresses the silence of heaven. And at the very beginning, it speaks to our struggle with doubt. You know, sometimes I think we doubt, not because of Jesus, but because of the way we think or talk about Jesus. I, I think sometimes doubt creeps into our souls, into our lives, into our minds, into our hearts, not because of Jesus, although I think there are times where that happens, but I think oftentimes, specifically when it comes to the Christmas story and it comes to our, our faith, how we talk or think about Jesus. Have you ever noticed that the Christmas story finds itself increasingly in the genre of fairy tales, in the genre of mythology, in the genre of folklore, that somehow we tell the Christmas story along with Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that, that we tell the Christmas story with stories that start this way, once upon a time, in a faraway land, or maybe better yet, said this way, in a galaxy far, far away, right? But that's where we begin to relegate the Christmas story. And I can understand why. It's pretty fantastic if it's true that God would leave eternity, heaven, break into space, time, history, to become a human, not any type of human, but the most vulnerable human to a couple peasants in an obscure part of the world to live a life for 30 years completely unknown in obscurity, and then only to have a three-year stint teaching, healing, 
lifespan and then suffer and die at the hands of his own creation only to rise again to bring freedom and life and redemption and healing. And I got to be honest, that is difficult to believe. I think there's another reason, though, why we often relegate it to the land of fairy tales, however. And I think it is fair to go, hey, that's that's a tough pill to swallow. That's pretty, if it is indeed true, that is fantastic. But here's the other reason. I think for many of us, why it lands in the long time ago, a galaxy far, far away. Because if it's true, it'd mean we'd have to change. See, if it's true, then, then we would have, it would not be, it's not safe to dismiss it any longer. If it's really true, then I can't treat it as something that's just, this is a nice story, it's got a good moral point, and isn't it a wonderful life? And aren't there a few things that I can take away from it, but I can dismiss the other stuff that I don't really like or I don't really believe in, and I can keep it at arm's length away because it's really a once upon a time type of story instead of it happened in this time story. But here's what I want you to notice, how the authors of the New Testament start out the Christmas story. In fact, this is how Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, he was a physician. This is how he began the story of Jesus. He writes it this way, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Instead of a long time ago, once upon a time, Luke says... Here's what you need to know. I've done my research. I've done the work. I've gone back to eyewitnesses. So when we're talking about the birth of Jesus, I interviewed Mary. When we're talking about what's going on, see, Luke and these gospels weren't written hundreds of years after the fact. They were written 20, 30 max years after the fact. Eyewitnesses are all alive being interviewed. He said, you know what? I did my work. I did my research. I have put in the time and the effort So that you can have confidence. In fact, one commentator wrote about Dr. Luke's introduction and said that it would have been what a cultured Greek would have expected to find at the beginning of a reputable historical work. See, one of the reasons I think the Christmas story for many of us has little impact on our lives is we treat it like a fairy tale. Instead of embracing that this is a historical reality that has been recorded. See, the good news, the gospel, 
That's what gospel means, right? When it says the gospel of Luke, we call that, that's one of the, the gospel of Matthew. It's the good news that Matthew's telling about Jesus. It's news. See, the good news, the gospel, is good news, not good advice. Advice is nice. Advice is something we can take or leave. Advice is, hey, you, you might want to think about driving a little bit slower, sometimes my wife says to me. And sometimes I take it and sometimes I do not. I should have taken good advice. But that's how we often treat the Christmas story. The Christmas story is not good advice. It is not a story that has a wonderful moral principle that makes you feel warm and good inside, though certainly it does have that. But fundamentally, it is good news. News is something that happened. News is is an event took place. News is something that you can record that took place, an event that happened, and as a result, our world is different. See, sometimes we doubt, not because of Jesus, but because how we think about Jesus. Is it advice or is it news? In fact, Tim Keller said this, that the gospel uh, narratives are telling not what you should do, but what God has done. This is what the news is. The angels proclaim it. The salvation of God is here, that God has broken into history to become humanity, that he would identify with us, that you have a God who can identify with you. That's so incredible, by the way. You have a God who knows sorrow. You have a God who knows rejection. You you have a God that has experienced pain and betrayal, who has been hurt and wounded, who, who has been backstabbed. You have a God who's been humiliated, left alone, saw those he was closest to walk away from him. See, this is the news of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah, 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 but okay, but... Again, again, how, how do I know? Like, like, Ingram, doesn't it take basically blind faith? You seem like you're not the dumbest guy on the face of the planet, but maybe you're not the smartest because you're just buying into this fairy tale. Here's the amazing truth about Christianity. It sets it apart, I believe, from every other religion. It is not based on... A philosophical presupposition. It is not based upon religious dogma, but Christianity is based on a singular historical event that you can examine the evidence to and then come to the logical conclusion of. That singular historical event is the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is who he says he is. And and all that was said about him in these stories are indeed historical fact. See, this is widely accepted whether atheist, agnostic, or theist in the scholarly world. That Jesus was a real man, walked the planet in Galilee, that he suffered 
and was crucified by Rome and by Roman crucifixion, that he was buried in a tomb, and that the tomb was empty on the third day, and that his followers believed that they saw the risen Savior and as a result died for that belief. Whether you, this is every single major scholar, atheist, theist, agnostic, believes those facts. Examine the facts, examine the evidence, and move your faith from a long time ago in a galaxy far away to the concrete anchor that the good news is fundamentally good news, an event that took place, not good advice. But I think sometimes we doubt, not just from the intellectual side, but back to the conversation about silence. I think sometimes we doubt because the silence is deafening. You know, waiting is one of the hardest seasons, I think, of life. I mean, think about it. Remember when you were a kid? December 4th hits, that's where we're at. And you have to wait 20 more days to open those gifts. Right? You remember how torturous, how arduous that was? And though we become more sophisticated in how we think about it, waiting is still one of the hardest things for us. To deal with when heaven is silent, when you pray and nothing, when you're waiting to hear back on that job, when you're praying for that son or daughter to come back to faith, when when you're when you're waiting for the biopsy report and what's going to happen, waiting is so hard. What's interesting is the Christmas story breaks the silence. In fact, something, if you got a Bible, this is kind of cool. You can do this with me because you've probably never done this before, and some of you have. That's cool, but go to Matthew if you got a Bible. It doesn't really work on the ebook side of it, so I apologize. But here's what's amazing. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1, and that's the first book in the New Testament. And if you flip over one page, you'll find the, the last book in the Old Testament, or really rightly called the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the book of Malachi, a prophet. And, and the last sentence of the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures is a sentence about a promise of God, speaking that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. There would be a forerunner to the long-awaited one who would restore Israel, restore uh, our reality to all things that are made to be right, restore our relationship with God. But there's going to be this forerunner, this prophet like Elijah. And it ends with this incredible sentence of hope and expectation expectation, and then you flip the page. And because we can flip the page like this, we, we miss out that when I flip that page right there, just right here, see that? See how quickly I did that? Look at that. Boom. I go, cool. And then a record of the genealogy of Jesus. Amazing. Here's what we miss. Between those two pages, 400 years of silence. 
400 years of waiting, 400 years of longing, 400 years of hoping, 400 years of going, maybe now, could it be today? 400 years of prayer of God, when are you going to deliver? And in the gospel of Luke, God breaks his silence. Writes this, verse 5. In the time of Herod, putting us back into the history of the time, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, here's what's cool about this, by the way. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. Isn't that cool? You're thinking about 400 years of science and your uh, silence, and your name is Yahweh remembers. I just wonder how many times he went, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think so. Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, also a descendant of Aaron, what he's saying is they come from good stock. They're both from a priestly line. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. These are good, good people. Observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Wow. And then verse 7, you see one big butt. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both, well, along in years. Could you do me a favor real quick? Would you put yourself in the story? Some, you don't have to imagine too far of what it's like to see everyone else have kids, but you can't. The hurt and the pain and the longing unfulfilled. See, there's two silences going on here. You have the grand narrative and then you have the micro narrative happening here of a couple who's done all the right things. A couple who's, who's walked with God and a priest, for goodness sake. And they've been praying praying and the silence is deafening I mean in that culture a sign of kids was a sign of God's blessing and so others would think there's something wrong with them others would think man God must not like you I mean, just imagine having to live in a tight-knit community and everyone else around you is having kids and you're not able to do that and they're talking about this and, and you just feel like you can't move forward. This is where they're at. This is how they feel. And then they say this and they, and they were both very old. What's interesting, if you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a few instances where we see this glimmer in here. Uh, but they were childless 
and then they were very old. And what's really neat about this, if you do the study, is, is you'll find that every time in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, it says this, every single time it's a setup for God going to do something. It's a setup saying, you've been waiting a really long time, but you're, you have not been overlooked. I think that's how we feel sometimes, right? When the silence is deafening, that God has somehow overlooked us, somehow missed us, somehow moved on from us. It's this little textual marker reminding us of Abraham and Sarah, reminding us of Hannah's prayer, reminding us of Samson's parents. If you read on, it tells the story of Zechariah. And he gets called, and he does this twice a year, to go and serve at the temple. And, and every, they would do this twice a year for a week, and so for two weeks he'd be serving at the temple. The rest of the time he'd be back home working some other trade. And he gets called, and they would draw straws for the person who would get to go minister in the temple. Now this is a once-in-a-lifetime, at best, opportunity. Some people never got to do this. And so they draw straws, and his straw gets drawn, and he gets to go present the incense in the temple. He's the only one that gets to go in. Everyone else is outside, and they're praying, and he goes in. In this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, he shows up. And can you just imagine his feeling? I don't want to screw this up. <laughs> this is my one chance. I hope I don't mess this up. Just thinking through, okay, i got to burn the incense. got to say, I'm going to pray this prayer, get all this in. All of a sudden, he realizes there's somebody in the room with him. He's not alone. He looks up and it says an angel of the Lord is there. And so his first response, by the way, anytime you encounter an angel, your first, my first response is going to be afraid. <laughs> Hello, afraid. And so the angel says, do not be afraid. Next line. This is so cool. God has heard your prayer. Singular. They've been praying a prayer for a lifetime. Felt like an unanswered prayer for a lifetime. You know God answers every prayer, by the way? Three, three ways he answers all, every prayer. Yes. Those are always the easiest ones. Aren't they great? It's like, yes! You pray for your friend to come to know Jesus, and all of a sudden, boom! Hallelujah, they come to know Jesus. You pray, and you pray for healing, and boom, they get healed. Woo! Right? Sometimes God answers no. You prayed for healing. Not only were they not healed, they died. You prayed, and sometimes God answers no. In fact, I love what A.W. Tozer said. Because I think in the nose is so helpful that all of God's acts are divine and perfect wisdom, first for his glory and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And sometimes in the nose, I just have to trust that God is wise and he's still good, even though I don't understand it. But I don't think the nose are as hard as his third response, the not yet's. The God in his grace says, not yet. 
Zechariah and his wife have been praying all their life, wondering if something's wrong with them and what did they do and the anguish and pain. And God's answer was not yet. And the silence was deafening. It's fascinating about God, isn't it? That he often shows up in the most unexpected ways. Here he is in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And then an angel shows up. Now here's, here's what the angel says. He says, by the way, you remember that 400 years of silence? Yeah, we've been praying about this. My delay was there's an appointed time that is going to come to fruition. And I, I don't like that you had to go through all this pain, but the joy is going to eclipse the pain because your kid is going to be the kid, the forerunner to the Messiah. And he's going to bring you great joy. He's going to bring you great delight, but he's also going to bring great joy and draw many people to God. Wasn't it worth the wait. Sometimes God delays his response. And sometimes we experience the delay. Isn't it true? Because there's better later. And so we have to live in the waiting now. But then when we're in those space, I think our question is exactly Zechariah's question. When we're doubting, when we're wrestling with God, at the heart of the question, he says this. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. You know, when I read this, what I read is, we've already had too much disappointment. We've already had a lifetime of pain. How? Can I be sure? That's one of the things we want in life is surety, certainty. <laughs> okay, this is, this is really fun. I, and you may not geek out on this the way I geek out on this, but, but just go with me here, okay? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Now look that up sometime and check out Gabriel because he did some pretty remarkable things in the Old Testament, specifically with Daniel, that he is a stud, right hand of God. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. By the way, when we talk about certainty, it's less about what and more about who. See, the who matters from where we get our information. Are they reliable? Are they a person of their word? What's their track record? So when we go to God, you got to go, are you reliable? Christmas story reveals the reliability of God. And now you will be, now notice this, he asked for a sign. He asked to be sure. Notice the sign Gabriel gives him. And now you will be silent. 
not able to speak until that day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their, and you just say appointed time with me, appointed time. God fulfills his promises in his timing and his way, which is often not our timing and our way. Therein lies the tension and the struggle for us. Here's the geeky part, okay? There's 400 years of silence. And then God breaks the silence, sends Gabriel, he speaks to him. And what's the sign for him? Silence. You just can't miss the irony. You think you got to realize God's got a great sense of humor, by the way. He's just like, silence. Now think about this. This is really, really cool. The last word out of Zechariah's mouth was a question. How can I be sure of this? You fast forward nine, 12 months. We're not really sure of the appointed time. He goes back to Elizabeth. In fact, he comes out of this encounter with him. He can't speak. And we learn later on in verse 62 that he can't hear either. He's making signs. He you know, writes it out for Elizabeth so she knows what's going on. His first, his last words was words of question. His first recorded words as a result are words of praise. The last thing, think about this, the last thing that he heard was the voice of an angel. Nine months to hear the last words of the angel's voice. His words to him. His words about the coming son that he would have. And then think about the first words he heard after that was the voice of his son crying. See, God fulfills his promises every time. You can take it to the bank. However, in his timing and in his way, often not in our timing, in our way. You have a God that's big enough for every question. In fact, I pray this is a place, not so much where you come to get your questions answered, but you have the freedom to wrestle with questions. You have a God who isn't afraid of your doubt. You have a God who stepped into history to have a relationship with you and with me. And I think we all wrestle with that question that Zechariah asked. How can I be sure? It's a funny thing, surety. If you examine your life closely, and I have mine recently, I'll explain. Much of the things we think we're sure about, we don't have certainty about. (laughs) And much of the things that we feel unsettled about, specifically with God, His Word, His promises, there's nothing more certain. Um, Friday, I had a very weird experience. Um, This... Evening, we're throwing a big party for all our leaders and team, and some friends at Forger are uh, hosting it at their space, uh, big warehouse space. And so uh, my wife, myself, and a couple other people were setting up Friday morning, 
and they have one of those big lifts uh, that you, you know, you get on, it's, it's like yay wide and yay big, you got that, all right? And it's the mechanical kind, you know, so you, you like stand on it and you can drive it around, which is awesome, what guy doesn't like to drive that around, you know, and then it takes you up, you know, 15, 20, 30 feet up, and so I'm hanging lights in this warehouse, driving this thing around, back and forth, and it's awesome, I'm not gonna lie, I was loving it, hanging lights up everywhere, zooming here and there, and then I needed to get it back into storage and where it was being stored, you had to go through a little doorway. Uh, and so the, the doorway was a normal doorway, but as little for this thing. It only had a couple inches on either side. And because of the height of the thing, there's only about four inches on the top of that. And so what I would do is I'd lean over the top of the bar and I'm looking at the wheels and I'm trying to get it all lined up to go through the doorway. I mean, literally 10 minutes. It was embarrassing. And so I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And I finally noticed that I got it pretty lined up and I'm going to give it a go and I go to go forward. However, I forgot one critical detail that the door does not fit my head and the lift. And so my head slams into the door and then I had the railing slam into my neck. And one of the things I'm really thankful for is the battery of the machine had been worn down from my back and forthness. Because <laughs> otherwise it just simply would have crushed my head. It scared the snot out of me, honestly. Um, I got stuck there and was able to finally get it back. And I've had only one other time where I, I literally thought I'm going to die. Um, and the reason I'm not shaved is it hurts too bad. Um, to shave. I have a mark blood all here. And uh, it's one of those questions, right? How can I be sure? No, some of the things we take for granted is the next breath and the next moment. That we're not promised next. We're not promised tomorrow. And yet we act with certainty around those areas. See, I don't know where you're at this Christmas season. If you're maybe outside the Christian faith, I would ask you, would you seriously examine the claims of Christ and the historical reality of the resurrection. And if you're in, and this is a new Christmas season, the Christmas story isn't sweet, it is also unsettling. The reason it is unsettling, because if God took on flesh, is the true king, what it requires if it's not just good advice, but good news, is that we center our entire life on him. Nothing less will do. And I just want you to wrestle, and I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to close with worship. 
I just want you to wrestle with what are you actually sure about? Because I promise you this, you are not guaranteed the next breath. I am not guaranteed the next breath. So would you have a conversation with God and bring to him what's in you, not what ought to be in you?